Part 5 of Descriptive Analyses of Piano Works by Edward Baxter Perry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chopin 2. Polonaise, A flat major, opus 53. Interesting from a historic as well as a musical standpoint is the origin of the Polonaise. In the year 1573, when the Polish throne became vacant on the extinction of the royal dynasty of Jagiello, a national assembly of electors was convened at the then capital Krakow to decide upon a new sovereign. The candidates for the throne were all of royal blood, Ernest of Austria, Henry of Anjou, of the House of Valois, brother to the ruling King of France, a Swedish prince, and Ivan the Terrible of Russia. But the real struggle lay between the Austrian and French princes. The choice fell at last on Henry of Anjou, later himself King of France as Henry III. In the following autumn he ascended the Polish throne, and among the many gorgeous ceremonials attending his coronation was one quite natural and proper under the circumstances, a formal presentation to the new monarch of the leading dignitaries and personages of his realm. It took place in the vast and magnificent throne hall of the royal castle at Krakow. The nobles and officials, each with his lady on his arm, defiled before the throne where the monarch was seated in a stately procession and as they passed before the king were presented by the master of ceremonies. This formal march was accompanied by suitable music, written expressly for the occasion, and performed by the royal band. Whether this embryonic polonaise is still in existence, no one knows. Probably not. But two distinct ideas were, or should have been, before the composer's mind in penning the harmonies with this solemn ceremonial. First, of course, to write music eminently suited to the occasion, to embody and, if possible, enhance all the pomp and splendour of the magnificent, august assembly. Second, to portray through the music, so far as it might be, something of the national characteristics of this Polish race which the Frenchman came as a stranger to rule over. The music, in its own way, was to serve as a species of introduction. Little by little, from this crude but characteristic beginning, was developed through the centuries the peculiar national dance, or more strictly speaking, March of the Poles, and the music performed during its progress came to have among dance forms the same title. It partook of the various stages of evolution to which all music was subject at different epochs, and within the last hundred years has been modified to keep pace with the general development of musical resources. But however it may vary in minor details of form and treatment, every polonaise which is true to itself must express the original ideas upon which the form was primarily based. On the one hand, a splendid ceremonial, on the other, Polish national life. In the present day, the Polonaise is a universally accepted musical form, common property with the composers of all nations. But Chopin, Polish by birth, education, and sympathies, found it strictly within his scope, and has easily surpassed all other writers in number, quality, and characteristic force as a Polonaise writer. Of his many works in this vein, the opus 53 in A flat is, in my opinion, decidedly the best both as regards virile power and direct forceful expression of the original Polonaise idea. It begins with a wild, impetuous introduction, brief but stirring, a sort of fanfare of drums and trumpets, intended to call the people to order and to establish at the outset the tonality of the mood, so to speak. Then follows the swinging, pompous measure of the Polonaise proper, readily suggesting by its splendid martial harmonies the proud military bearing, the gorgeous armour, and the stately tread of those steel-clad feudal heroes as they defiled before the throne. 
In place of the trio, usually of a more quiet nature in works of this kind, Chopin has introduced a very singular passage, the most strikingly original portion of the whole composition. A long, sustained, stupendous octave climax of the left hand, consisting of a little rhythmic figure of four notes, constantly reiterated with growing power against a sort of trumpet obbligato in brilliant measured chords for the right. The movement vividly suggests the tramp of cavalry. The composer had in mind the Polish light horse of medieval fame, a very aristocratic body of picked horsemen, composed of the flower of Polish chivalry and disciplined in constant warfare with the Turks. A number of the brilliant officers of this division were necessarily present at the coronation ceremony when the Polonaise form originated, and these were their exploits Chopin endeavors to introduce by means of this singular passage. There is a curious anecdote afloat concerning the effect of this movement on the composer himself. On one occasion, when playing the nearly completed work, his nervous organism, enfeebled by illness and his imagination, intensely excited by the fever glow of composition, he was seized by a peculiar hallucination. He fancied that a band of the knights he had been attempting to betray came riding in from the gloom of the outer night in through the open walls of his apartment, arrayed in their antique war panoply, horse and rider, just as they might have arisen from their century-old graves in Poland. He was so overcome by this self-invoked apparition that he actually fled from the room, and it was some days before he could be induced to re-enter it or resume work on the mighty Polonaise. Immediately following the great octave climax referred to is a subdued, vague, fearsome little passage in light running figures, totally foreign in movement, mood, and even key to the remainder of the work for which he would be at a loss to account if unacquainted with the circumstances narrated, but which, with the light just thrown upon it, is readily understood. The author seems to have lost for the time the thread of the composition, to have drifted far from its martial mood and swinging rhythm. But after a period of groping indecision, through which we hear the trepidation and reluctant fascination with which he again approaches this monster of his own creation, with a sudden boldness of attack, he regains the clue, resumes with energy the march movement, and the work sweeps to its close with even more than its original power and splendor. The Impromptu in A-flat, Opus 29 Light, graceful, dainty, capricious, full of playful tenderness and delicate fancy is this little work, written for and presented as a wedding gift to one of his favorite pupils, la Comtesse de Lubau, to whom it is dedicated. The first movement embodies the joyous, hopeful, congratulatory spirit of the occasion, expressed with all that refined elegance and polished perfection of style of which Chopin was so preeminently the master, both in music and language. It is the most unqualifiedly optimistic strain from his pen with which I am acquainted. The trio in F minor brings a touch of half-failed sadness and irrepressible regret as if called forth by the thought that their artwork together is now to end. She has been for years one of his most talented, diligent, and interesting students. She is, like himself, a Polish exile in a foreign land, and their community of sympathies and sorrows, combined with her charming personality and congenial temperament, have tended to merge the relations of teacher and pupil into the closer bonds of a lifelong friendship. He is naturally reluctant to lose her, but this mood of depression is soon subordinated to the thought that she has found the philosopher's stone, the fabled blue flower of the German poets, the subtile yet supreme panacea for all human ills, love. 
This idea is expressed in the last half of the trio as only Chopin could express it, and the work ends with a repetition of the first strain, brightly, happily, with a certain restful completeness of fulfilled desire in the reiterated closing chords. Fantasy Impromptu, Opus 66 Among other manuscripts found on Chopin's writing table after his death was the original of this composition, complete in every detail, but written across the back in his own trembling hand with the words, To be destroyed when I am gone. It is difficult to account for this injunction, except upon the theory that he feared that both the form and the content of the work were too original, too subtle and complex, and too wholly unfamiliar to the musical world of his day, to be readily comprehended, and that it would either suffer from incorrect rendition or be condemned and ignored. So he preferred a quick death by fire for this child of his sad later days, to a slow death by mutilation or cruel neglect. Fortunately, the request was disregarded by his friends. The work was published and has become one of his most beloved, as it is one of his most faultlessly beautiful compositions. The peculiarity of form referred to is familiar to all who have attempted the study of this impromptu. The whole first movement, consisting of a continuous rapid figure of four notes in the right hand against three in the left, is one of the most unusual and difficult musical problems to solve satisfactorily, and only to be mastered by long and special practice. A case, as I have often said, where it is well to remember the biblical injunction, Let not thy right hand know what thy left hand doeth, but when smoothly played, it produces just that sinuous, interwoven, flowing effect which the composer desired, and which could not have been obtained in such perfection in any other way. The content of this composition, like that of many of Chopin's smaller works, is purely emotional, like a strictly lyric poem by his literary counterpart Tennyson. For instance, it is a wholly subjective expression of a mental state, an emotional condition, not of any scene or any action. It touches the minor key and sounds the plaintive harmonies to which his heart strings were tuned and vibrating at the time when it was written. It voices a soft summer twilight mood, half sad, half tender, full of vague regrets, of indefinite longings and aspirations, of fluttering hope, never destined to be realized, and bright, fleeting memories that rise and pass, dimmed by intervening clouds of sorrow and disappointment, like the shifting forms and hues of a kaleidoscope seen through a misty glass, or the luminous phantoms of dead joys and shadowy suggestions of he might have been, against the grey background of a sad present and an uncertain, promiseless future. It is a strange, delicately complex mood, a mood of life's sunset hour, coloured by the pathetic glories of the dying day, and the depressing yet tranquillizing shadows of the coming night, a mood well-nigh impossible to express, but perfectly embodied in the music. The following simple little verses, in which, as will be seen, has been made a somewhat free use of the suggestive symbolism of nature, may serve to illustrate, though by no means to the writer's satisfaction, his conception of the artistic significance of this composition. The Fantasy Impromptu The sigh of June through the swaying trees, The scent of the rose new-blown on the breeze, The sound of waves on a distant strand, The shadows falling on sea and land, All these are found in this stream of sound, This murmuring mystical minor strain, and stars that glimmer in misty skies, like tears that shimmer in sorrowing eyes, and the throb of a heart that beats in tune with tender regrets of a happier June, when life was new and love was true, 
and the soul of the stranger to sorrow and pain. Tarantel, A-flat, Opus 43 Brilliant, effective, and not excessively difficult though it be, this admirably constructed and thoroughly characteristic Tarantel in A-flat is but little played, perhaps because it appeals less to the love of the true Chopinism of Chopin than most of his compositions, as being out of the recognized Chopin vein, deficient in the special melodic and emotional elements usually distinguishing his works. Nevertheless, considered objectively, the Tarantelle, from the standpoint not of Chopinism, but of what the true Tarantelle should be, it is one of the best ever written, hence one of his masterpieces, and furnishes another proof of the almost infinite versatility of his creative power both in style and in mood. The origin of the Tarantelle as a musical form is interesting and must be considered in judging the real merit of this or any similar work. The name is derived from that of the Tarantula, that venomous denizen of southern climes, of the spider species, whose bite is usually fatal. There is a generally prevalent belief among the peasants of both Spain and Italy, a belief founded, no doubt, upon centuries of experience, that there is but one reliable cure for this poison, and one which nature herself prescribes and imperatively demands, that of violent and protracted bodily exercise, and the consequent excessively profuse perspiration, enabling the system to throw off the poison through the pores. The idea has the same pathological base as the ancient Arabic cure for hydrophobia, recently revived with great success in this day of resurrection of buried wisdom, an extremely hot and long-continued steam bath. It is claimed that the victim of the tarantula is seized by a delirious desire, an uncontrollable madness for dancing, which, if fully gratified, in fact encouraged and stimulated to the utmost, may save his life by means of the prosaic but practical process above suggested. So his friends assemble in haste, form a circle on the village green or plaza, strike up the wildest, most furiously rapid and exciting music possible on any instrument that may be at hand, preferably the mandolin and tambourine, as the most rhythmic and inspiring, and take turns dancing with him, until each is exhausted and gives place to the next, and until the victim recovers or dies of fatigue. The faster the tempo, the more intoxicating the music, the better the purpose will be served, and the greater the hope of a successful cure. From this crude and primitive germ, the modern musical art form known and used all over the world has gradually developed, retaining, of course, as must every characteristic dance form, the spirit and fundamental element of the situation and circumstances which gave it birth. The true tarantelle may be either in a major or minor key, the latter being most common, but it must be wild, stirring, exceedingly rapid, with a strong rhythmic swing and a certain dash and go, irresistibly suggesting the fever of the dance at its most delirious ecstasy. It is always written in 6-8 time, which is somewhat singular, as it has none of the usual rhythmic peculiarities of that measure, but invariably produces the impression of 12-8, or, perhaps still more strongly, that of 4-4, four, four, with the beats divided into triplets. In fact, this is generally the best method of counting it for the pupil. It should contain no harmonic or technical complexities to distract the attention of either player or listener from the regular rhythmic swing and form and movement of the dance. The melodic trio, occasionally introduced by some composers, is always an incongruous artistic absurdity wholly out of place. But the musical form is common property of all composers in all lands, the actual dance as such is specially identified with southern Spain and Italy, and is rarely used elsewhere. 
To the tourist, one of the most unique and vividly interesting episodes of his sojourn in these localities is the performance of the tarantelle by one of the trained dancing girls, which may be witnessed almost any evening, given with all the dash and verve of the southern temperament, a perfect embodiment of grace and fire and dance frenzy. This tarantelle by Chopin possesses all the essential characteristics in a high degree, with not a single lapse or irrelevant digression in mood and form, even in the details of accompaniment. It may be taken as a model of the true tarantelle, spirited, well-sustained, throughout, and eminently playable. Bersus, Opus 57 The Chopin Bersus, which is the French word for cradle song, is a most unique as well as the most ideally beautiful composition standing alone in all piano literature as regards its form and harmonic structure the only one of its species it is beyond all question or comparison the finest cradle song ever written for the piano an exceptionally perfect example of that rare blending of spontaneous genius and mechanical ingenuity for which chopin was so preeminent resulting in a work matchless in its originality its suggestive realism its delicacy of finish and its poetic content. An organ point on D-flat, which is its only bass note, sustained throughout the entire composition, and a couplet of the simplest chords, tonic and dominant seventh, alternating back and forth in a swinging, rocking motion, form the accompaniment, continued practically without change, from first measure to last, portraying naturally, easily, yet unmistakably, the soothing monotony of the rockabye movement. The left hand may be said to rock the cradle throughout the whole composition, while in the soft, continually intertwining melody in the right hand, like an endless, enfolding circle of maternal love, we find the lullaby song of the mother, sung as she sits there in the hush of the twilight, rocking her little one to sleep. Around and over this melody Chopin has flung, with his own inimitable delicacy, a silver lacework of embellishment, falling soft and light as the moonlight spray from fountains and fairyland as through the idealizing summer haze half veiling a distant landscape we seem to catch dim glimpses of the dream pictures the fleeting fancies the changing phantasmagoria of prophetic visions that drift through the brain of the mother as she sits there in the gathering dusk waiting for the little eyes to be tightly closed and wondering vaguely to herself on what scenes they will open in the far future years slower and gentler grows the motion of the cradle softer and lower the lullaby song further and further the dream pictures drift into the shadows until at last the wings of slumber are folded about the little one silence reigns the mother's daily task of loving ministry is ended and she too may rest the two lingering closing chords soft and slow suggest the moment when she rises from the cradle and spreads her hands in silent benediction over the sleeping child infinite tenderness and delicacy are needed for the interpretation of this composition a tone like violet velvet and a light fluent finger technique to which its really extreme difficulties seem like dainty play scherzo in b flat minor opus thirty one a very familiar yet always fresh and intensely interesting composition is this scherzo the name is an Italian word signifying a jest, and we find in musical nomenclature a number of derivatives from it as scherzino, little jest, and scherzando, jestingly, playfully. The term is used by most composers to designate compositions that are bright, playful, humorous in character. 
Nearly all the leading composers have written more or less in this vein. Mendelssohn particularly excelled in it, and even serious old Beethoven became quite jocose at times in the scherzo movements of his symphony, though it always reminds one of the sportive dancing of an elephant. Chopin applied the name to four of his greatest, most intense and impassioned works, seemingly without the smallest reason or relevancy. Why, no one can even surmise, unless it may have been in a mood of sardonic perversity, of sarcastic bitterness, purposely to mislead the public as to the real artistic intention and significance of the music, and see if they would have sufficient perception to discover it for themselves. It is a sad commentary on the insight of many of our so-called musicians that they have not done so even to this day, and persist in playing the Chopin scherzi, jestingly, and as trivially as possible, which may be the subtle covert jest which Chopin intended. Who knows? In reality these four works, especially the first three of them, are among his greatest and grandest. They are broad, heroic, seriously and profoundly emotional productions, marking the high waterline of his creative power, full of the strength and the virile energy which those acquainted only with his nocturnes and waltzes are inclined to deny him altogether, but in which he far exceeds all other composers, past or present, with the possible exception of Beethoven and Wagner. Jests only in name, or, if in fact then in the sense of bitterest satire, aimed at the world and at life, jests written the heart's blood of the composer, written when Poland, his beloved native land, lay in her death agony, and three great European powers had combined to write the word Phoenix in Polish blood and tears across the last page of her history. What wonder that the music throbs with intense but conflicting emotions, fiery indignation, fierce defiance, bitter scorn, and, in the next breath, pitiful tenderness for the wronged and suffering, heart-breaking sorrow the unavailing heroism and wasted lives of his country. All these moods will be found in swift and sharply contrasting succession in all the four scherzi, but notably in the one in B-flat minor, which I regard as the best of the four. The seeming incongruity between its name and its musical content, its ostensible and its real significance, always recalls to me famous lines. The lip that's first to wing the jest is first to breathe the secret sigh, the laugh that rings with keenest zest that chokes the floodgates of the eye. Prelude in D-flat major, opus 28, number 15. A unique position in pianoforte literature is occupied by these preludes, opus 28. They derive their name rather from their form than from their musical import. Like the usual preludes to songs, or more extended musical works, they are short, fragmentary tone sketches rather than complete pictures, each consisting, as a rule, of a single simple movement, and embodying but a single concrete idea, and seeming to imply by its brevity and its suggestive rather than fully descriptive character that a more elaborately developed composition is to follow, to which this has been but an introduction, and in which the idea here merely outlined, will receive more exhaustive treatment. In reality, however, each of these preludes is complete in itself, an exquisite musical vignette, containing, like some dainty vial of hand-cut Venetian glass, the distilled essence of dead flowers, of memory and experience from Chopin's past, particularly of scenes, episodes and emotional impressions of his romantic life on the island of Majorca. 
just as a painter might have sketched with hasty but truthfully graphic pencil on the pages of his portfolio the fleeting impressions produced upon his senses and imagination by this novel picturesque environment so the composer has preserved in these bits of offhand but vivid tone painting glimpses into his daily life his moods and experiences during that winter of eighteen thirty eight to nine banished by his physicians to this mediterranean isle in the hope of benefit to his fast-failing health and refused shelter to in any hotel or private residence on account of the there prevalent belief that consumption was contagious chopin and the little party of devoted friends who accompanied him most notable among whom was the famous french novelist georges sand were forced to improvise a temporary abode in the semi-habitable wing of an old ruined convent which had been abandoned by the monks it was picturesquely situated on a rocky promontory commanding a view on the one side of the open sea dotted with the countless white sails of mediterranean commerce on the other of the sheltered bay the village beyond and the lofty volcanic mountains in the background here they spent the winter and here nearly all of the preludes with many others of chopin's most poetic smaller works originated artistic crystallizations of passing impressions and experiences concerning which and the life in which they originated george sand writes while staying here he composed some short but very beautiful pieces which he modestly called preludes they were real masterpieces some of them create such vivid impressions that the shades of the dead monks seem to rise and pass while the hearer in solemn and gloomy funeral pomp others are full of charm and melancholy glowing with the sparkling fire of enthusiasm breathing with the hope of restored health the laughter of the children at play the distant strains of the guitar the twitter of birds on the damp branches would call forth from his soul melodies of indescribable sweetness and grace but many also are so full of gloom and sadness that in spite of the pleasure they afford the listener is filled with pain some of his later tone poems bring before us a sparkling crystal stream reflecting the sunbeams chopin's quieter compositions remind us of the song of the lark as it lightly soars into the ether or the gentle gliding of the swan over the smooth mirror of the waters they seem filled with the holy calm of nature when chopin was in despondent mood the piercing cry of the hungry eagle among the crags of Majorca, the mournful wailing of the storm, and the stern immovability of the snow-clad heights, would awaken gloomy fancies in his soul. Then again the perfume of the orange blossoms, the vine bending to the earth beneath its rich burden, peasants singing his Moorish songs in the fields, would fill him with delight. Prelude in D-flat number 15 which I select as one of the most beautiful and characteristic of these sketches, embodies a strange day dream of the composer in which, as he says, vision and reality were indistinguishably blended. One bright late autumn morning the little party of friends had taken advantage of the weather, and of the fact that Chopin seemed in unusually good health and spirits, to make a long talk of excursion to the neighbouring village, promising to return before sunset. During their absence, a sudden tropical tempest of terrific severity swept the island. The wind blew a hurricane, the rain descended in floods, the streams rose, bridges and roadways were destroyed, and it was only with extreme difficulty and considerable danger that they succeeded in reaching the convent about midnight, having spent six hours in traversing the last mile and a half of the distance. They found Chopin a state bordering on delirium. 
The physical effect of the storm on his shattered nerves, combined with his own depression and his keen anxiety for them, had combined to work his sensitive and that time morbid temperament up to a state of feverish excitement, in which the normal barriers between perception and hallucination had well nigh vanished. He told them afterwards that he had been prey to a gruesome vision of which this prelude is the musical portrayal. He fancied that he lay dead at the bottom of the sea, that near him sat a beautiful siren singing exquisitely sweet and tender strains, a song of his own life and love and sorrow. But though her voice was soothing in its dreamy pathos, and though he felt oppressed by a crushing languor and fatigue and longed for rest, he could not lose consciousness, because, tormented by the regular, relentlessly monotonous fall of great drops upon his heart, as the drops continued increasing steadily in weight, and in importunate demand upon his attention, as if burdened with some great and sad significance which he must recognize, he became aware that they were the tears of his friends on earth whom he had loved and lost. With this knowledge, vivid memory and poignant pain awoke together, and his anguish grew to an overpowering climax of intensity. Then, nature's limit being reached, the force of his tempest of grief finally exhausted itself, and he sank gradually into a state of dull, despairing lethargy, and at last into welcome unconsciousness, the last sound in his ears being the soothing strains of the siren, and his last sensation, the now faint, feeble, but still regular falling of his friend's tears upon his heart. This composition should be conceived and executed so as to render to the full its intensely emotional character. The first theme in D-flat major, with its sweetly languorous tone, should be given quite slowly, with pressure touch, producing a penetrating but not loud singing quality of tone, while the reiterated A-flat and accompaniment which throughout the whole work suggests the falling drops, must be at first vaguely hinted, rather than distinctly struck. The middle part in chords should be commenced very softly, with a whispering mysterious tone, affecting the hearer like the first shadow of an approaching thundercloud, or the presentiment of coming woe. Then the power should steadily increase, gradually, relentlessly, like the stealthy, irresistible rising of the dark cold tide about some chained victim in an ocean cave the light of day has never penetrated, mounting steadily, not rapidly, to the overwhelming climax of the reiterated octave B in the right hand. In the repetition of this passage, the same effect should be produced, with a climax still more intensified, and let the power as gradually decrease, till at the return of the siren's song, to sunk into pianissimo, and the closing measure should fade away into silence, like the echo of dream-bells. I have dwelt at some length upon this prelude, because it is the best known of the set, the most complete, and generally speaking, the most effective, and because, in connection with the suggestive quotation from Georges Sand, it will serve as a helpful inspiration to the student in arriving at an intelligent comprehension of the others, but a few words in further elucidation of some of them may be in place. The first, in sombre, sonorous chords, expresses Chopin's initial impressions of the stately but half-ruined monastery in which he and his little party had found refuge, and the solemn thoughts called up by its decaying grandeur, its silent loneliness, its vast, gloomy, memory-haunted halls and cloisters. The third represents an evening scene, with the setting sun kindling to crimson and gold to spires and picturesque whitewashed cottages of the village of Majorca, a mile away across the little bay, of the gentle breeze, like the sigh of departing day, 
brings the sound of silvery bells from the little village church ringing the vesper chimes. The fifth and sixth embody the same mood, in an almost identically similar setting. They may be effectively combined into one picture of a dark, depressing late autumnal day, a day of grey skies and leaden sea, of heavy, windless calm, calm exhaustion and utter weariness, with the low, sad rain dripping monotonously upon the roof like the tears of the gods for a dying world. In one, the melody expressing the element of human sorrow is in the soprano, plaintively, touchingly, sweetly pathetic. In the other, it is placed in the lower register of Chopin's favourite orchestral instrument, the cello, which it reproduces, throbbing with a more passionate intensity, a more poignant pain. But in general character and treatment, the two belong together. Number eight tells of the gay carol of the birds at dawn, floating in at the open windows of Chopin's chamber. Number 17 is a rustic dance of the Majorcan peasants. Number 24, the last, is a graphic description of a tropical storm with the flash of lightning and the ominous roll of the thunder literally portrayed. Space does not permit of a detailed analysis of all the numbers, but each has its special character and suggestive import, and is a picture of some episode or mood during that winter's sojourn on Mallorca. End of part five.